You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. The problem. In the first study, I presented you with a brief overview of the nature of man, one that argued that we're highly valued and greatly loved, but also deeply fallen. In this study, we're going to further explore the deeply fallen part, that is, the doctrine of sin. I realize that most people would rather choose sand than head down this path. Indeed, in a culture that celebrates freedom and promotes self-esteem, where the only thing you're supposed to feel guilty about is feeling guilty, and the closest thing you hear to a confession is that mistakes were made, some of you are embarrassed that I'm even bringing this up. But I believe we need to take an unblinking look at sin for two reasons. First, because it's imperative that we understand what we're up against. And second, because the good news is only good once you understand just how bad the bad news really is. And it's bad. I also think open discussions about sin are welcome because people really do wonder, at least occasionally, what's wrong with them. Why can't I be consistently good? Where do these thoughts come from? Why is it so hard to be kind? Likewise, at least occasionally, while scanning the morning headlines or reviewing the bloody pages of history, they ask the Rodney King question. Why can't we just get along? Why can't we work out our differences and fix our problems? Why do banks need vaults and doors need locks? Why are newspapers filled with the robbery, rape, and violence instead of joy and peace? What's wrong with us? The Bible has a one-word answer. Sin. Scripture teaches that we have a dark and self-centered disposition that pollutes our best intentions and robs us of the ability to love God and others. Ours is not a surface wound. We're broken at the deepest level. Of course, many deny this, or at least try. For the first part of the 20th century, the view launched by Socrates and reborn during the Renaissance was popular. That is, that man is inherently good and the problems we face are educational, not moral. All we need is a bit more time because to know good is to do good. Right up until the 1940s, many Westerners believed that every day and in every way, things are getting better. Paradise was just around the corner. Of course, paradise is not what the 20th century delivered. Instead of utopia, what we got was two world wars, three holocausts, and weapons of mass destruction. Wonderful advances were made, especially in agriculture and medicine, but scientific breakthroughs not only increased the grain harvest and led to life-saving vaccines, they also led to bigger bombs. As anyone who was honest could see, the heart of man limited the progress of progress. Few talk about utopia anymore, nor do they argue for the perfectibility of man. Instead, efforts to deny sin have taken a different tact. The new approach is to reject moral absolutes. Debates about truth have been replaced by agreements that your truth and my truth might be different, and that's okay as long as you do not suggest that your truth is better. It's as if, having grown tired of poor test scores, we've decided to say that every answer is right. Of course, this doesn't work, not for long anyway, nor does it make sense. Neither sincerity nor personal preferences can change ultimate reality. But then, that's just my truth trying to assert itself. Against all of this, the Bible says that we're sinners. We are highly valued and greatly loved, but we are also deeply fallen. What exactly is sin? A dozen different biblical terms are used to define sin. They focus on everything from rebellion and disobedience to lawlessness and failure. An additional handful of words are used to describe it. 
providing us with images of oozing sores, filthy garments, unpayable debts, and errant arrows. What exactly is sin? Perhaps it's easiest to start by establishing the four things it's not. First, sin is not simply a mistake. It's not difficult to get people to agree that they've made mistakes, but the underlying assumption is that no harm was intended. The offender simply misjudged the situation. If they had access to better information, they would have acted differently. At least that's the way the story is told. Of course, most of us know that there is more to it than this. Sure, honest mistakes are made and ignorance often fuels them. But many times we know what we are about to do is wrong and we choose to do it anyway. In fact, you can fit the state of Montana in the gap between knowing the right thing to do and always doing it. Paul admitted as much. I do as well. Honest mistakes are not our chief problem. Sin is. We are not primarily mistakers. We are fundamentally sinners. Second, sin is not another term for sensuality. Those who have read too much Freud end up blaming sex for everything. The Bible does not. It warns us about the corrupt desires of the flesh, but it does not link all sin to the physical body. In fact, some sins, pride, envy, and hatred, to name just a few, have no relationship to the body at all. Clearly, our sex drive is capable of leading us into a ditch. But the Bible teaches that our problems are more than skin deep. They go to the condition of our heart. Third, Sin is not limited to selfishness. There is merit to the idea that sin and narcissism are kissing cousins. Clearly, we are bent in on ourselves, in curvatus say, and this orientation leads us in all the wrong directions. But self-love is not an adequate description of sin for at least one reason. It suggests that sin is in our best interest, and that is never the case. Sin is ultimately irrational and self-destructive. No one who sees things clearly would ever choose to sin because they would know how harmful it is to them and those around them. The problem with the sinner is not that he selfishly elevates his needs ahead of God's desires, but that he does not even understand what his needs really are. Finally, sin is not a small matter. Some have trivialized sin by associating it with petty crimes and schoolboy pranks. Don't drink, smoke, dance, or chew, or go with girls that do. This is a tragic misunderstanding of the problem. The horror of sin cannot be captured by any list of vices. We need to think of it as an act of rebellion against God's holy rule. Sin is cosmic treason that leaves us isolated, confused, broken, and fatally compromised. It cuts us off from God, frustrates our relationships with each other, and sets us on a path towards hell. Sin is not a small matter. It is our central problem, the gravity of which we will only begin to comprehend once we stand in God's holy presence. What is sin? Think of it in two ways. First, sin is any willful act or thought against God. In this light, it is both doing the wrong thing, acts of commission, and not doing the right one, acts of omission. It is also any desire out of step with God's nature. Augustine defined it as any word, deed, or thought against God's eternal law. Second, Sin is a condition. It is a moral infection that damages every aspect of our true nature, rendering us guilty before God and affecting everything we think, do, and say. This condition makes it impossible for us not to sin. And this, 
as you're about to see, is actually the bigger problem. The origin of sin. Moral infection, fatally compromised, set on a path towards hell. How did we get in this mess? Where did sin come from? When did things go wrong? The Bible's answer to these questions are initially presented in Genesis 3, one of the most important chapters in either testament. There, just a page and a half after we're told of the creation of a good world, we read about the primeval tragedy that led to the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." Entire books have been written on just these few verses, so any summary offered is going to be limited. But at the highest level, you should note three things. First, sometime after God created Adam and Eve, they rebelled. Second, their actions were prompted by an evil being who deceptively suggested they could be like God. And finally, their failed coup had catastrophic results. Their relationship with God was broken, their relationship with each other was damaged, and they became slaves to sin, and they fell under the curse and were made subject to death. Additionally, everything under their care was ruined. We divide our Bible into two testaments, old and new, but we might just as accurately divide it into two epochs, the events before sin entered the world and the events after. From this perspective, Genesis 3 is the pivot point. In fact, 
Genesis 3 is so important that it's hard to understand the biblical view of anything without keeping it in mind, and two important terms find their origin here, the fall and original sin. It's my experience that most people have a pretty accurate understanding of the first, but are a bit confused when it comes to the second, so let's turn there next. Original sin. What is original sin? Some use this term to refer to the initial rebellion of Adam and Eve, but when theologians use it, especially when they capitalize the O and the S, they do so to describe both the guilt and the broken condition we inherit because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. That is, original sin, capital O and capital S, is the result of the original sin. Many people believe we are born morally neutral, or better, and only get into trouble because of our own actions. That is, we are called sinners because we sin. But the Bible teaches that we are born morally broken because of the evil stain we inherit. That is, we sin because we are sinners. If this is the first time you've heard this, I would expect a bit of shock and anger. The idea that we're implicated in some aboriginal calamity does not sit well with 21st century readers. But two things are undeniable. First, Something is wrong with all of us, not just a few of us, and not even most of us, but all of us. And second, Paul teaches that this universal problem is the result of Adam's sin. In Romans 5, he writes, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as though the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. There's good news mixed in with the bad, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. What you need to see at this moment is that we are broken from the moment of our conception because Adam's sin was imputed to us. Why would God allow this to happen? Does this mean I couldn't be good if I tried? Are you telling me I'm in trouble for something I didn't do? How is any of this fair? Let me attempt to answer these questions in some sort of logical order, but we need to back up a half step first. Discussions about sin eventually become discussions about evil. Let's save time by moving there next and setting a few critical pieces in place. The reality of evil. 
There are a few questions about evil that we are not able to answer, but there are at least six key points about it that we must understand in order to appreciate the nature of sin and the challenges that we face. One, evil is real. Evil exists. The Bible teaches that there is a morally degenerate, counterfeit kingdom that is organized against all that is good and God-ordained. This dark cancer often operates in the shadows, preferring subtle tactics to anything overt. But despite what some people maintain, evil is not an illusion. It is an immortal, excuse me, it is an immoral force of spiritual wickedness determined to wreak havoc in this fallen world. 2. The leader of the true evil empire is a fallen angel named Satan. Prior to the creation of mankind, an angelic being grew jealous of God's glory and committed the first sin. Fueled by his own pride, he persuaded one-third of the other angels to join him in an effort to overthrow God. This insurrection failed, and all those who took part in it were cast out of heaven. It was Satan, who is also called the devil, the serpent, Beelzebub, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of air, the evil one, and the father of lies— who tempted both Eve and Jesus. Neither he nor his followers, now called demons, wear a red suit, carry a trident, or have pointy horns, though they would like you to think they're that comical and harmless. 3. The outcome of the battle between good and evil has been decided. Some mistakenly imagine that Satan is God's equal but opposite, and that the outcome of the epic clash is undecided. Both beliefs are wrong. Though the devil and his troops are more powerful than we are, they are finite creatures who never had a chance of success against the all-powerful one. In that sense, the story about their clash is actually quite boring. What makes it shocking is the length to which God went to rescue mankind, a victory he achieved at the cost of his son's life. Christ's death secured a release of the captives. Though the battle rages on, the outcome is certain. 4. Though the outcome is certain, the fighting continues. For months after Japan's surrender in World War II, the islands of the South Pacific remained war zones because some of the Japanese troops had not been told that they had surrendered and others refused to concede. In a similar sense, we remain in a war, although the outcome has been decided. We do not fight for victory, but from victory. Nevertheless, we do fight, doing so against an enemy that will use temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, envy, pride, slander, and any other means possible to hinder our efforts to honor God. It is imperative that we understand we are participants in a high-stakes cleanup operation against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 5. Satan is not to blame for everything. Flip Wilson often claimed, The devil made me do it. Practically speaking, that is unlikely, because the devil is not an omnipresent being. He can only be in one place at a time, and chances are small that you've caught his attention. Might we be misled by a demon? Yes, that's a possibility. However, even there, some caution is needed. The Bible spends relatively little time discussing demonic activity or coaching us in the tactics of spiritual warfare, and far more time instructing us to pursue holiness. Our fallen nature means that we're more than capable of making a mess of things all by ourselves. As C.S. Lewis stated in the Screwtape Letters, his biting satire of spiritual warfare, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which the human race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
the others to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Six, evil presents itself as an exciting, alluring, and frequently sexy form of freedom, but it is ultimately a cold, life-denying form of bondage. The forces of darkness may be more powerful than we are, but their power is limited. They cannot create, only destroy. As a result, there is nothing inherently attractive about evil. It is simply deficient good backed by a powerfully deceptive ad campaign. Think of it as a thin gruel well presented. You might think it will lead to joy and excitement, and it might deliver both for a brief period of time, but it will always leave you unsatisfied. Sin is ultimately miserable and monotonous. Beyond our headlights. Earlier I mentioned that questions about sin lead to questions about evil, and that not all questions about evil can be answered. The three that we are unable to answer, at least on this side of the grave, are as follows. One, where did evil come from? Two, if everything was good, why were Adam and Eve, and Satan before them, tempted? And three, if God is both all-powerful and all-good, then why does he allow evil to exist? There's an entire branch of theology that explores these mysteries. We're not going to wade very deeply into that pond at the moment, but several key points do need to be made. God is not the author of evil. The Bible tells us that God is just and holy. It further notes that all that he made was good. He cannot sin, nor is he to be blamed for sin. Indeed, in the book of James, we're told that he cannot even desire to do anything wrong. Therefore, although we cannot say exactly how evil came into existence, we can state that God did not cause it. God currently allows some evil to exist. While we state that God is not evil does not do evil, nor did he cause evil, we must also maintain that he does allow it. In light of God's providential control of all things, if evil exists, it is only because the all-powerful one has ordained it. 3. God will eventually put an end to evil. Finally, we must also state that God will right all wrongs. He has promised that one day he will throw the devil and his troops into hell and make all things right. But that will be at the end of the age. At the moment, his loving patience stays his hand. As noted earlier, our headlights do not shine deeply enough into this mystery to provide answers to every question. Perhaps God allows evil because it leads to his greater glory. Perhaps we cannot truly love God without some, albeit limited, freedoms, which are in turn abused and lead to evil. We do not know. When it comes to these kinds of questions, we cannot say more than the Bible says. This may be frustrating, but hopefully not surprising. Some of the ways of an infinite God lie beyond the comprehension of finite creatures. God would not be God if we could always understand him. Three things we need to know about sin. So far, we have defined sin, discussed its genesis, and briefly surveyed the doctrine of evil. I'm quite certain your list of questions is growing longer, not shorter. We'll attend to those in a moment. But first, there are three points I need to clearly emphasize. You are a sinner. Sin has damaged every aspect of your being. And this is a problem with eternal consequences. You are a sinner, as are we all. I've made this point before, but it needs repeating because many try to brush it off. They're willing to accept that Hitler is a sinner and Stalin as well. In fact, there's a list of 20th century thugs that almost everyone is willing to throw under the bus. Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Mao Zedong, but everyone? 
Some protest on their own behalf. I'm not that bad. Most defend someone else. You should meet my neighbor. She's a saint. She volunteers at the nursing home every other week. I've never heard her raise her voice. She feeds stray cats. Are you implying that sin has corrupted her heart? Yes. As shocking and offensive as this claim may be, Scripture teaches that we all fall short of the glory of God. With the exception of Christ, every single person fails to meet God's standards in every single way. This can be hard to see when you compare sweet old ladies with Adolf Hitler, so let me clear something up. Hitler is not the standard. God is. The question is not, am I as bad as a genocidal lunatic? The question is, am I as good as God? And the answer is, no. The most wonderful person on the planet cannot even gaze upon God's presence because his holiness is too overwhelming. And if we were able to create a righteousness spectrum with Hitler at one end and God at the other, we'd find the distance between sweet old ladies and Adolf Hitler infinitely small compared to the moral gap between sweet old ladies and our holy righteous God. It's hard for us to see this because we view everything through the prism of our own sin. But this is the clear teaching of the Bible, and as these select verses make clear. Quote, no one living is righteous before God, end of quote. Or, quote, there is no one who does not sin, end of quote. Quote, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous acts are like filthy rags, end of quote. Quote, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, end of quote. No one is righteous, not even one. As the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn realized during his stay at the Siberian prison camp, the fault line between good and evil does not run between people, but within them. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessarily it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Everyone other than Christ is a sinner. That includes you. Sin has damaged every part of you. Some writers suggest that we're as bad as we can be, a condition theologians refer to as utter depravity. This is not the case, as any thoughtful person realizes. No matter how bad we are, we can imagine a scenario in which we could be worse. What Scripture does teach, however, is that sin has damaged every aspect of us, a condition theologians refer to as total depravity. Our mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual faculties have all been compromised by the fall. As a result, every person fails to meet God's standards in every way. It's as if a tablespoon of poison has been mixed into a glass of water. The drink remains mostly water, but the poison has spread throughout it, has ruined every part. This is a problem with eternal consequences. Sin not only cripples us today... It drives us from God's presence and invites his wrath. There is no readily acceptable and politically correct way to talk about God's punishment of sin. Most people embrace the concept of justice only because they do not understand how guilty they are and what justice demands. That is, they like the idea of bad guys getting what's coming to them without realizing that they're the bad guys. What Jesus makes clear is that those of us who carry a moral debt to the grave can expect to face the wrath of God against it. This point is so important that the entire next study is devoted to it. 
the five most common questions people ask about sin. Before we explore the consequences of sin, in other words, death, judgment, and hell, let me attempt to answer some of the most frequently asked questions people have about sin. One, are all sins the same or are some worse? The answer here depends on exactly what you're asking. Theologically speaking, any sin, even the smallest, separates us from God. As James wrote, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. God is perfectly holy. The slightest blemish, which is truly an act of cosmic treason, disqualifies us from his presence. However, while all sins are bad, some sins are worse. Hatred may be enough to separate us from God, but it's not as bad as murder. Jesus calls lust adultery in our heart, but that does not mean that lust is as great an evil as adultery. Some of the confusion here grows out of an unhelpful distinction made between mortal sins, that is, large sins consciously entered into, and venial ones, which are smaller sins committed without much forethought. During the Middle Ages, it was suggested that God could easily forgive venial sins, but that mortal ones destroyed his justifying work of grace, meaning that a person who died with unconfessed mortal sin was not saved. While agreeing that there is a difference between small sins and large ones, the Reformers, that is, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the like, argued that it was both wrong to think about any sin being so small that it did not matter, and also wrong to think that some sins were so bad they overpowered God's grace. So, how do we answer the first question? All sins are bad, but some sins are worse. Two, what happens when a Christian sins? A complete answer to this question will have to wait for study four, but for now, let me state that the legal standing of those who have placed their faith in Christ does not change because of sin, but our relationship with God is damaged. In other words, we do not lose our salvation, nor do we face the condemnation of God for our sin, but that does not mean we will not suffer in any way because of them. For starters, just as our relationship with our earthly parents can be strained when we act poorly, the intimacy we might otherwise enjoy with our Creator is lost. Additionally, we can expect to face the natural consequences of sin, and we may face God's loving discipline. The writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith answered this question by stating, Although they never can fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under their God's, their Father's, displeasure, and not have the light of His countenance restored unto them, until they humble themselves, confess their sin, beg pardon, and renew their faith in repentance. 3. Are all my sufferings the result of my sin? No, it's not that simple. Job suffered, but not because of anything he did wrong. And when Jesus was asked if a particular blind man was born that way because of his sin or that of his parents, he answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. While it's true that sin leads to suffering, in other words, choose to sin, choose to suffer, there are too many variables to establish an immediate correlation between what we do and what comes our way. For starters, it's just not just our individual actions that matter. We may suffer because of the sins of other people, because God judges entire nations, or simply because we live in a fallen world. Additionally, God's common grace is currently in effect, meaning that we do not always suffer for the thing, things we do wrong. In light of this, 
we cannot establish an immediate cause and effect link between our actions and our suffering. Four, does the doctrine of original sin mean that babies are sinners? Yes. I'm not anxious to criticize anyone's newborn. I'm sure your children are cute and adorable. But I will point out that they do not need to be taught to say no, throw tantrums, or do everything in their meager power to get their way. Would you want to spend time with a 30-year-old whose favorite word is mine and who doesn't give 10 seconds thought to the needs of others? In Psalm 51, David wrote, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Some have mistakenly understood this to refer to his mother's sin, but the frequent use of the personal pronoun in this psalm, Have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, make it clear that David is filled with remorse for his own failures, and in the course of reviewing his life, he realizes that sin has been a part of who he was from the very beginning. Question five, are we able to overcome sin under our own power? No, our efforts to please God always fall short of the mark. In fact, Isaiah describes our best as filthy rags. The clear teaching of the Bible is that no one who has been subject to sin can pay back their moral debt. There is no human cure for what ails us. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Question six. How is the doctrine of original sin fair? Among the many discussions that surround the doctrine of sin, particularly those that explore the doctrine of original sin, the question of justice is the most pressing. How can I be held responsible for something I did not do? I wasn't in the garden. I didn't disobey. I didn't even ask to be born. How can Adam's sin be my fault? Several answers have been put forth. First, some state that it's not fair and simply dismiss the doctrine altogether. Jews fall into this camp, as do some Arminians and most liberals. I'm using the term liberal here to refer to those who described the tenets of 19th century theological liberalism, not those who leaned to the left on political matters. Pelagius, a popular 5th century teacher active in both Rome and North Africa, was the first to give full expression to this view. He argued that God would never expect us to be good if that were not possible. Therefore, it must be within our ability. Both Jerome and Augustine wrote against this view, and it was declared heresy, but many, mostly unknowingly, pitched their tent here, dismissing Genesis as a parable without truth and holding that Jesus is, the only, sa- is only a Savior in the sense that he sets a great example. Those who understand the Bible more literally believe that there is some type of link between Adam's fall and our culpability. One group, called the Realists, hold that we are born sinful because we participated in Adam's rebellion in some way. The second group, called the Federalists, believe that Adam acted alone but did so as our representative, therefore we inherit his debt. Theories aside, at least three points need to be made. First, though the Bible does not develop the doctrine of original sin, it never suggests that our problems are someone else's fault. The clear implication is that our sins are always our own and that God will render to each person according to his works. We have each willfully committed many actual sins that place us in moral debt to God. We may choose to blame the devil, poor parenting, or even Adam, 
But when we sin, we show what's inside us. Second, if it is wrong for Adam's sin to be transferred to our account, it must also be wrong for Christ's righteousness to be transferred to our account. In other words, if imputation is wrong, it's wrong on all accounts. Finally, at some point it's prudent to stop worrying about who's to blame and start paying attention to the solution. The bad news really is bad. I realize that this study has been long on bad news and short on good, and as a result, some of you are feeling like you've been run over by a truck. Original sin, total depravity, the fall. You thought studying the Bible was going to make you feel better, not worse, but at the moment you feel sick and angry. I understand. When C.S. Lewis was asked to identify the religion that brought the greatest amount of happiness, he replied, self-worship, while it lasts. He then went on to note, but I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly cannot recommend Christianity. I'd like to tell you that everything is going to be okay. It's going to be fine, that it's no big deal, that God is willing to wave you through to the next round because you're a lot better than Hitler. But that would be infinitely irresponsible of me. You need to hear the truth, and the bad news about the bad news is that it's far worse than most people ever imagine. We have each offended God Almighty, the holy, just, and righteous judge of the world. When Jesus was asked how God could allow a tower to fall on 18 people living in Siloam, the first century equivalent of the question, why do bad things happen to good people? He replied that there were no good people and told those asking that unless you repent, you too will all perish. When, God was, when Paul was called upon to explain the good news to the people living in Rome, he opened his letter being very clear about our desperate need for God's grace because we are all in serious trouble. In the early chapters of Romans, he spoke of God's wrath and then wrote, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Their poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ugh. This is not the final word, of course. The good news is around the corner. But the bad news is much worse than most of us think, and we need to stay focused on it for one more study before we can move on. If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org. 